Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. But the willingness to engage people where they are with a root of love, right? That's the assumption there's some love in the family so you can have these conversations. It allows you to be more candid. It allows you to have robust debate, sometimes a little bit intense, (laughs) and still come back to the table, hopefully. You just heard Kareem Weaver, the founder of Fulcrum Oakland, award-winning teacher, and one of the subjects of the film, The Right to Read. Mr. Weaver is a passionate literacy advocate and is our guest today on All for Literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Dr. Liz Brooke, and today I'm joined by Kareem Weaver, the co-founder and executive director of Fulcrum Oakland, award-winning teacher and administrator. So thankful that you're able to join me today, Kareem. Nice to have you. Dr. Brooke, it is my pleasure, and thank you for the invitation. Sure, and please, please call me Liz. I'm so excited to have a conversation with you because I think, you know, listening to your previous podcasts and your story, I think we have a lot of similarities in how we started out. So I started as a first grade teacher in the mid-90s. And I did not know what I needed to know to be a first grade teacher, but maybe something that's similar to other teachers out there and maybe yourself is I didn't even know that I didn't know what I needed to teach reading. I knew that I hadn't really had a lot of courses in it, but I didn't know about all of this science of reading that was out there. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about your experiences when you started in the classroom and kind of your journey from that initial point? Sure. Well, my first foray into a formal classroom was in South Carolina. I worked in a place called Epworth Children's Home, which is basically a K-12 orphanage and a critical care unit counselor, but also an educator. And so these are students who really don't have much margin for error and the system has to get it right. And I was stunned at what they did. They used some computer technology called Justin's Learning System and some other things to really assess kids and then identify their learning path and support them. But I remember them saying, whatever you do, make sure they know how to read. And I I, I think when the veneer is stripped away, you know, the, the comfort zone that everything's okay and this and that, when you know kids have to have something, to undergird them because society hasn't offered them a buffer. You hone in on what's essential. And that experience at Epworth really crystallized that for me. They're like, look, whatever we do here, our kids don't have the luxury. They need to know how to read. And so we just made sure that they did. And that was my formative experience in the classroom, my first experience in the classroom. And I'll never forget that. And I've taken that with me in different settings, the Department of Juvenile Justice, in South Carolina and also um, in Oakland as a teacher and a principal in a variety of other roles. I agree that idea of if they learn nothing else, they need to learn to read. And so did you feel like you had been prepared to teach them to read in your undergraduate work? My undergraduate work did not teach me how to teach kids how to read. That wasn't it. 
what I did was I followed in the footsteps of a woman named Marva Collins, who is a legend in the black community, particularly. And her story in Chicago was popularized by a movie. I encourage everyone to go watch that movie. You can watch it for free now. But it really talked about how she took kids who were struggling and she worked with them and she taught them how to read and they did great things. And, they, you know, it was, it was a glamorized type movie, but the nuts and bolts of it, it was a true story. And she wrote a book and I studied her and I was like, oh, I can do that. It wasn't called the science of reading back then. There was no moniker for it. There was no hashtag or anything else. It was simply called good teaching. She started at the beginning. She went step by step in a systematic, direct and explicit way. She didn't skip anything. And she worked with all kids, all kids, whether their parents had a cushion for, you know, private tutoring on the side or people who, you know, weren't doing so well in life. She worked with all kids in all ethnic groups. And she got them to read. And so she was lauded in the black communities, particularly. And so that was where I studied. I studied just her writings. She used to give conferences around the country. She did trainings with educators. So that's where I learned to teach people how to read. That was it. And also, when I was in Morehouse College, we had a program called Students for the Children of Incarcerated Parents. And we realized that, you know, we wanted to facilitate communication between the students and their parents. The communication was tough because they'd write these letters and the parents couldn't read them. And it was a stunning imposition. We didn't expect that. With all of our wonderful aspirations and hopes and all that and all the good we thought we were doing, we found that it was even more stressful for the parents at times when that was the case. The child would write them a, a long letter and, you know, if their heart felt and they just couldn't access it. So they would either have to pay someone or negotiate to get someone else to read the letter. It just was a mess. And we realized, oh, my gosh, we have this wonderful initiative. But if the kids parents aren't able to read, there's another layer of complexity that we have to account for. And so I, I took all that into consideration. And so when I came into the classroom, I was ready to go. And thank goodness, because when I got into Oakland, whew, you know, at that time, mid nineties, it was, it, it was a problem. Literacy wasn't going very well. And the cycle seems to repeat itself. But I applied those lessons that I had in my earlier education and experiences as an educator to my context in Oakland. And thank goodness I had those to fall back on. Right. That's so interesting that so many of us didn't get the education that we needed in our undergraduate programs, but instead had to go out and seek and find that information ourselves. Mm -hmm. I know you've been doing some work with colleges and universities, I think in particular Morgan State University. And I was wondering if you wanted to share some of the work you've been doing with them around improving teacher accreditation. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you asked. So I'm also the second vice president of the Oakland branch, the NAACP, and the education chair as well. So formerly on the California State NAACP committee. And the NAACP has an entire arm dedicated to education and trying to find good outcomes for kids. So wearing that hat, I often am in, you know, connecting with universities and working with people, trying to protect kids' civil rights and make sure they get access to education. But this conversation about Morgan State is different. This was something that the NAACP is definitely interested in. But for me and my nonprofit, Fulcrum, we, we realized, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. They're doing something that's very, very important. One, Morgan State is a historically black college. 
and University. It is one of the most prestigious in the country. It's in the Maryland area. And they are, one, looking to become accredited through the International Dyslexia Association, their knowledge and practice standards, which is phenomenal. Yes. Not very many schools in the country have done that. But they're in the final stages of, of being credited, which would be landmark. And secondly, they have infused the principles of the science and reading into their program in a functional way. They're led by a phenomenal doctor. Uh, I mean, there's several professors that are wonderful, but I've connected with Dr. Simone Gibson, who is also a Spelman College alumnus. I'm a Morehouse College alumnus. Those are sister schools functionally speaking, and we've met, we've connected. And I said, you're doing some wonderful work there. I wonder what we could do to bring what you're doing to greater light. And that's what we're trying to do. We have connected them with groups in the area that are involved with very innovative methods of structuring their practicum. You know, there are some people that have used technology to do tutoring so that people have on-the-job experience, or should I say pre-service experience, teaching children to read. It's just a phenomenal effort. I'm so proud of Morgan State and the work that they're doing. They've made sure that dyslexia is on the front burner, not the back burner. So when people go into schools, they already have this gift, this knowledge of how to teach a child to read, even children with learning differences. The thing is that these type of efforts usually go unnoticed. Nobody hears about Morgan State doing this, you know, but that's got to change. We as a society have to elevate the institutions that are committed right. to social justice through education, not because we're, you know, having them parrot a certain dogma or doctrine or whatever philosophies, but because they have the skill to teach reading to our children early and consistently in tier one instruction. That's the social justice link. And so I'm just so incredibly proud of them. In fact, we're going to be showing the Right to Read film at Morgan State in partnership with several local branches of the NAACP. Hopefully someone from the, the uh, state branch or conference can come as well. But we, we just, we're all in on Morgan State because Morgan State is all in on our kids. And I would encourage anyone to go to the, uh, I believe it's called the Black and Dyslexic podcast show. We oftentimes don't think of dyslexia as being a black thing for whatever reason. It's painted with this color of white, but it's equal opportunity. Uh -huh. you know, it's a neurological processing difference. Everybody gets, I mean, it, <laughs> but we don't, so that's why it's even more important for a historically black college and university to say, hey, wait a second, this applies to all kids. So we want to make sure our people, our trainees, our credentialed candidates are able to service all students, including those with neurological processing differences. And so I'm just so glad. That's one example, but it's one that we uh, are very, very excited about at Fulcrum. And also that the local and state uh, conference at NAACP is also excited about because Morgan State really can make a huge difference in this fight against illiteracy. Absolutely. And there's a couple of threads in there that I'd love to talk about. First, you mentioned <laughs> the, the knowledge and practice standards from IDA. Right. And yeah. I think so many folks don't know about those standards. And as you said, they're phenomenal. And then to have teachers coming out of school, understanding what dyslexia is. And I think you mentioned that, you know, these explicitness, systematic, 
things that people often associate with students with dyslexia are beneficial for all students and making sure that teachers understand that as part of their undergrad so they don't have to feel like they need to go out and find their own education once they get in the classroom. So that's phenomenal that Morgan State is seeking that accreditation and that they're looking to drive that equity through educating their teachers so that when they enter that classroom, they know the underlying, that's the the powerful thing of those knowledge and practice standards is you're going to have a different classroom, different set of profiles every year. But if you have those underlying ingredients, those underlying pillars, if you will, you can use assessment, you can work with those students. We're not teaching them one recipe, we're teaching them the ingredients, right? And so that's what I love about those knowledge and practice standards. And I also, what you said about dyslexia is painted white, it's a really important statement to think about. And even the the reading crisis in general, right, oftentimes you hear it discussed as it's mostly impacting black and brown students or this and that, but it's really equally impacting different folks. But some folks might have resources to get private tutoring And you mentioned Fulcrum supporting Morgan State. I do want to ask you a little bit about Fulcrum and why you started it in its advocacy wing, especially. Did that stem from your time as an administrator in the school or what really drove you? To to start off, well, listen, I will definitely break that down. No problem. But I want to just say one more thing about those knowledge and practice standards and Morgan State and all that. I'm glad that you named that. There's a color to this thing. And America's infatuated with race and color. Like, but there's also an economic component to it. Absolutely. Because when parents have the resources and the, the money and the understanding, you can buy your way out of this thing. Uh-huh. You can get a private tutor, a private school that specializes in dyslexia, for example. They're out there. But most people don't. Right. Most people are living paycheck to paycheck. In America today, most people can't handle a $5,000 emergency. So when your kid needs private testing, that can cost anywhere from five to $15,000. When your kid has, needs, you know, private tutoring twice a week, 50 to $250 an hour. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. And so most people, it, it's almost a form of educational apartheid where those who have the resources have access and others are just on the wrong side of the tracks. But because we see everything through a racial lens, we often say, oh, well, this is a black and white thing or brown, but actually it's economic. Uh-huh. And if you don't have the money, you're over there. I could go to the foothills of Appalachia where, where most people don't look like me and they're struggling with the same stuff. And when certain principles of instruction are applied, those kids thrive just the same way second language learners thrive, the same way black kids thrive, the same way. But it's important like the race, you have to deal with the racial element of it because it does impact. So, for example, when do the alarm bells go off? I'm going to be giving a presentation at a conference soon. I'm going to talk about this. When do the alarm bells go off? Well, historically in America, we've used the discrepancy model. Right. The wait so, to fail model. <laughs> right. Right. And, and yeah. that was in 31 states. It's still there. Mm-hmm. Right. And which means that if your child's far enough behind, then we can help them. But who determines that? Right. It's my perception as an educator. And I'm a human being. 
right? I have perceptions about what girls can do, what boys can do, what blacks and whites. And I don't mind, I may not say it or even think it, but my perception, my wiring, my antenna, I'm a human being. And so I want to get it to the point where we're screening kids, we're, we're drawing conclusions, we're providing assessments for kids, not because we perceive there's something uh, more quickly in a certain group, but we're giving this assessment because it's Tuesday and we give assessments on Tuesday. Right. And so no, no one's going to fall through, through the crap. So that's what I mean. Systematically, we have to make some, some shifts uh, because if we don't do that, we'll, we're, we're human beings and we're going to miss kids, which we can't afford to do. But you asked me about Fulcrum. Yeah. So I did the full thing, you know, within the school district and loved every second of it. Then I ran the Western region of a talent development program called New Leaders, which recruited, trained, supported educators in their practice in the classroom. And then also those who wanted to become administrators who did that for five or six years from Hawaii to Denver and and just worked with those folks in California as well to develop as many high functioning principles as possible because leadership matters in schools. Mm-hmm. I did that I was a funder for a while, worked for new school. I did I so I did a lot of things. And this is one of the things that came out in in that uh Right to Read movie that LeVar Burton produced and Jenny McKenzie. It talked about my dad passing away and that made me step back and recalibrate. You know, um I'm human. Yeah. And I have made two I would say great pushes in my life professionally. Um, when I was a teacher, I was that teacher. And, you know, that teacher is glamorized in movies and all that stuff, but that teacher pays a price. And so I found myself, you know, once married, then single. <laughs> my wife was like, my wife was like, you you weren't really married to me. You were married to the yeah, school and the kids. The job, and yeah. She probably was right. So I realized, okay, I got to change. But then I became a principal. And I did some things better and differently. I was remarried. I did some things. I did some things differently, but I still paid a price physically. And I ended up, I'll never forget, summer after one of my years as an administrator, I was in a hospital bed lying there, my family all around me. I was like, this, this, this is unsustainable <laughs> at best. <laughs> you yeah. know, someone's um, trying to send so, me a uh, sign here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right, right. So, so I had to make some choice, some choices. And, but I, I, you know, and then my father passed away and everything. And I realized, okay, time is not a given. Right. Life is too short. You just, and you never know. So I just decided to um, only do the things that matter most and just, just focus on that. Now that came at a price because I didn't know of a job that, you know, working with the NAACP is great, but it's an all volunteer organization. It's in California. We were all volunteers. And so I, I was both feet in and 10 toes down for the NAACP, but that wasn't paying bills. And I think I was literally down after burning through my life savings and the kids savings. <laughs> I was down to my last two color copies of Nancy Young's Ladder of Reading. And I met for breakfast with a friend of mine and she was like, Kareem, this is too important for you to just tap out because you're not feeding yourself and you're pencil thin. Let's make this to a nonprofit and add some structure to this, get some resources in here, not just to sustain you, but actually to help create a movement. And so that's what we've been trying to do is to get enlist the help of everybody. 
so that it's just not just going to be a cult of personality or a few people here or organizations. This has to be a nationwide movement that we're going to prioritize our children and put literacy on the front burner. It's aligned to the NAACP's national resolutions on dyslexia, their organizational constitution and, and how education is a priority committee or like an all time committee. Um, but also just the, as a 501c3 and fiscally sponsored agent, actually, we, we have to say this is who we are. This is what we prioritize. This is what we're working towards and set goals and go after it. So we're trying to get all kids to read and do it as quickly as possible, but as sustainably as possible so that they have a fighting chance. Right. I love that concept of national movement. And that kind of goes to, I know the right to read. I saw that at the Reading League conference. It was a very powerful movie. I know it's gaining traction. I think this month it's being screened at South by Southwest. This idea of national movement and, and I think these movies telling the personal stories is helping to drive that broadening of the message. Yeah. But I'm wondering how we can harness any traction that we are getting in a national level to actually improve progress. What are your thoughts there? Um, so a couple things in terms of a national movement. Uh, that's the only reason I agree to let those folks follow me around for however long it was, <laughs> is because we need, you know, people respond to different mediums, you know, film, mm-hmm. books, speeches, whatever, everybody's different. And so that was for a season and a reason. You know, there's other movies coming out too about the reading crisis. And I hope that they are, can kind of add to the conversation as well. But that was my hope. Um, it's been released we just had a film festival in Santa Barbara, and pretty soon, I think in the next few weeks, I'm supposed to be going to D.C. to have it shown to some folks in Congress. And I believe Dr. Jill Biden, will, Jill Biden will be there and others. And in that same trip, we'll then go over to Morgan State and support them and kind of connect with them as well. So this idea of a movement, it's really important. This cannot be something that is tethered to one color or political party. Absolutely. Or one economic class, because we just can't help ourselves as Americans. We watch our channels. We listen to what we listen to. We, you know, we donate to who we donate to. And there's these echo chambers. And this movement will never get where it has to go if that's our approach. You know, I always tell people the reason why Social Security has lasted so long is because everybody's grandma gets it. Bipartisan. Everybody's yeah. grandpa gets it. I don't care what your economic background is. At a certain age, now we can talk about life expectancy and how that that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. But okay. but in principle, everyone has access to it. And that's why it's hard to get rid of. Right. <laughs> For either party. They can talk a big game, but don't touch social security. <laughs> and I want the science of reading and, and reading in general to be that this has to be an everybody thing right which is tough it's tough in america because everybody things requires a public that has an appetite for cooperation and for whatever reason we just don't Uh, like i'm just going to keep it real with you we just don't We, we are bifurcate we're split and we are developing a disdain for each other now I'm not going to get into politics of all that, but I will say that we color everything with a political lens. So Mm -hmm. I'm fighting like the Dickens to get this out of the political arena. 
which is tough because that's what everything is put through. And just make this a humanity issue. That's why the NAACP is so important. There are civil rights. Everybody has civil rights. Right. Right. In Ontario, Canada, the Human Rights Commission, it's called the Right to Read Commission, talked about the science of reading and how to improve literacy. It was under the Human Rights Commission. And so that's where literacy has to go. It matters to me if my neighbor can read or not. It matters to me if their child can read. I don't want uh, black people who can't read. I don't want white people who can't read. I don't want Latino people who care. I don't want anybody right. to, to not ha- to not have that skill. Well, and you don't care if they're Republican or Democrat, right? Heck like no. Everybody has Heck the right no. to read. In fact, because I also, first of all, I respect your humanity, mm-hmm. right? Forget about the politics. I respect your humanity. Two, I'm safer. My country is safer. My wife is safer when she walks to her car. I'm safer when I'm fishing on the bayou. Like our economy is safer. When we can read, when, when people can't read, they get desperate, they get desperate. And it's in a vicious society that rewards merit, that rewards skill, that rewards access. If you don't have it, you're on a razor's edge and there's no telling how people respond to that. Now, to their credit, most people figure out how to make life work. But there are some people who just say, screw it. Right. They couldn't even teach me to read. Why should I why should I hold back anything? Why should I care about them? Why should I care about this? Well, it, it does matter. And that's why it matters to me what my neighbor's children can do. It matters to me what the community over there, their children can do. It matters the quality of their schools. It matters the reading program they have. I could say, well, forget them. They've got money. Beverly Hills, 72 or 73% of their third graders are reading proficiently in this last California state test. Well, that's great. So I should leave. No, that means one out of four of their third graders right. can't read. That means, and, and that means they're spending money to, you know, to remediate and support the kids. And we have to stop assuming that other people's issues don't matter because of their context. I learned right. that when I was in high school, when I was sent off to a, 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 through a program called A Better Chance. I was taken out the hood and I was sent to a place where very, very wealthy people who were now doing all kinds of amazing things. And I recognized and learned that, oh, they got problems too. So yeah, my community is on fire because of the crack epidemic, but this little girl's got a eating disorder, this kid over here, their parents, like everybody's got stuff. Right. And right. I have to be human enough to recognize other people's stuff matters and that we have to be able to engage in common cause towards a common purpose for a common humanity. And that, I think, is part of our society growing up a little bit and being able to see each other as equal participants and equal sojourners in a societal project. Right. And the piece you said about, you know, 75% or whatever it might be, and then there's still one in four. I remember a superintendent had 40% of his kids, Mm -hmm. you know, reading proficiently. And he said, okay, so tell me which six out of 10 of those kids over there don't get to read. Right. 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 So this right, right. concept that literacy is a civil right, it is not Republican, it is not Democrat, it's not black, it's not white. It has to, as you said, be a national movement. And if we let it get political, we're in trouble. 
Well, Liz, Liz, it it does have a color. The color is green. If you have money, if you got money, that's true. You know, you can you can get some support. You can get private educational testing. You know, um, and I use my own childhood example. I love my daughter dearly. My youngest daughter. You know, we didn't have the money. Two educators, her mother and I, we didn't have a ton of money. And uh-huh. so we ended up having to pay for private testing and we passed the hat around the family because we didn't have the money. And we got tired of fighting the school system. We, we paid for it. We got the private testing. They said, oh, she's got dyslexia. What? My little daughter. At that time, she was right before her junior year of high school. Now, here's another way that race does matter. The alarm didn't go off for the school system for her like it went off for other kids. She could read. I taught her how to read. They show that in the film. I'm teaching her how to read. All the things. And so there was officially no problem. This is the legacy of the discrepancy model. Officially, she can read. Why are you worried about it? Well, I know what my kid can do. She probably behaved well in class and was quiet. And and girls have it the worst. Girls have it the worst. Girls will sit there and they'll be nice. And they're they're lauded for being nice and demure and kind and sweet. Uh, Oh, she's so nice. She's such a nice. Everybody loves her. That's what the teachers told us. I'm like, wait a second. Her reading is going down every year. Every week, it seems like she now hates school when she used to love school because the methods you're applying are actually unraveling her mental framework on how to break down words and and how to access the language. There's something wrong here. But because of the color of expectations, Mm -hmm. the alarms never went off. We had to we sent letters. We we, we had meetings with all the things you're supposed to do to no avail. Promises were made promises were broken. And so there is a color to this in terms of expectations for kids. George Bush once referred, he came before the NAACP and he said, we have to be very mindful of the soft bigotry of low expectations. And we have to be, and, and he was right. Mm-hmm. He was he was right about that. Um, because we have different expectations for different kids as human beings. It just, we don't want to. That's why it's so important to have systems in place. Right. Going back to we test on Tuesdays. Yeah, it's it's Tuesday. It's Uh Tuesday. That's all. It's not it's not because I think Hakeem is, you know, behind or whatever. It's this Tuesday. We're going to find out about the sub skills that he has and hasn't developed fully. So it's it's a really important point that this can't be just a matter of money and individual teacher expectations. We have to give our teachers a chance and not ask them to make figurative bricks without straw. Right. Absolutely. And that unconscious bias of every human and building in those systems and structures and understanding we're testing because it's Tuesday and what questions are we trying to answer for these students with this test? It's so important. So in our last episode, we spoke to Emily Hanford, who I know you've worked with, was in the movie, and how we arrived here and ended the conversation with her was, so what's next? You mentioned about going to Congress and I'm excited to hear that, but how do we make sure that A, it doesn't become politicized, but more so, how do we make sure that schools and districts start to understand science of reading is not just a hashtag, it's evidence of what works, but how do we help schools and districts understand what comes next. What do you think is the most important thing 
now that this awareness is getting out about the evidence, the awareness is getting out about the approaches that work across the board. But what do we do? So there are three things that I'd like to mention to answer that question in terms of what's next. First of all, probably the most uncomfortable is that we have to start playing home games instead of away games. What I mean by that is everyone, um, our society has has developed this habit where we like to criticize the other side. (laughs) We love to point fingers at them over there, that group, that party, that team, that school, that parent, whatever. We're a finger pointing group. And so the first thing is we have to change from that to a home team. Thing. We, we have to be willing to engage our own groups about the science of reading, about the importance of literacy, about making this a priority and move it away from the political realm. So that means I need white women to talk to white women. I need Asian women to talk to Asian women. We need the NAACP to talk to the NAACP. I need to talk to my folks. I like Kareem, why would you say that? Because those are some of the most difficult conversations. First of all, no one can change your mind more so than someone who you love and that you identify with. Mm. We have to be willing to have robust conversations with the people that we love because we have the greatest access to them. And we know how to reach them when others probably don't. So, you know, I said the most powerful conversations take place at the Thanksgiving table. And we have to be courageous enough. And it's very trendy today to cancel people. So I'm not even going to talk to Uncle John because Uncle John's a this. And he, you know, I don't even, I don't talk to him. He makes me feel that. Okay, guess what? You may think he's a hater and this and that, but who do you think Uncle John's going to listen to more than you? It's you. (laughs) You're the one. we, We have to put up pull up our pants and talk to our own folks and engage them about the importance of literacy, where they stand, how this impacts society and ask them to wait. We just have to get aligned on that. That's, that, that's an expectation. So I was at a meeting a couple of days ago with a, an elders group in the African-American community. I just said locally here. And I was on with someone else as a guest and we had a robust conversation about the role of critical race theory, the importance of social emotional learning, and all these other things that are hot button topics. And I said, you know, I hear you because I hadn't said much. I said, but I want my kids to be able to read the theory rather than sitting here arguing about it. I just want them to be able to read the doggone theory. So can we prioritize that? Can we, you want to talk about social emotional learning, but the biggest trauma that's going on is that our kids can't read. And so every day they're being victimized by these rising insecurities. Right. This was a family meeting. There was a lot of love, a lot of kente, a lot of melanin in the room. <laughs> and so here I am talking about something that was not popular necessarily, but by the end we were able to agree. Yeah, you know what? That's important. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you for, thank you for, and it was tough. There's probably a few hurt feelings, but for the most part, we made progress more than some other group would have been if they made a speech or something like that. So that's the first thing we can do. Talk to the home team. Second thing is we have to start elevating people who've come up the rough side of the mountain with literacy. When board members and superintendents struggle to learn to read, or that maybe they have a child who's dyslexic or a 
a parent who's dyslexic or a sibling, they move differently. Mm-hmm. They have a different level of engagement. You, you have to put people in there who can even perceive the problem because they've seen it and they see how it unfolds in families and individuals' lives. If I'm a board member, if I'm a board president, I want to know who your chief academic officer is when you apply for the superintendent's job. If either you or your chief academic officer does not have some connection to students with learning differences, whether it's through your study or your personal experience in your family or connection, I'm going to ask for, you know, what's behind door number two, Um, because you have to make sure that that's front and center of their mindset and their planning. And the third thing is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Next step would be going to the American Federation teachers website, look up elements of an effective reading program and see they've already got the five elements listed there. They've had them there for over a decade. Right. And just ask yourself, what of these five things are we doing and which are we not doing? Consider the scorecard. I know we get into the politics about unions and I look, I, that's not where I'm just saying AFT has gotten it right for a long time. It's been aligned with the National Reading Panel, both National Reading Panels, the English one and for biliteracy. And research has borne them out to be correct. Just follow it. Right. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just look to see what they have and see if those elements are present in your program. And if not, act accordingly. Absolutely. And I think... A couple of those. I love the analogy of home team versus away team. I grew up as an athlete, so I love those sports analogies. But you were saying at the conversation, even though there was maybe some controversy, there was a level of trust there that you could work through it more so than if some outside organization yes. had come in. So I, I love that concept. And we have to be honest that we need bridge builders. Trust has been frayed. And right now in America, we've got a fever. And to each his own politically, but the, the fever writ large prevents us from listening very well to folks outside of our, our but we, we don't get the same sources of information. We don't have the same opportunities to engage. And so we talk at each other, right? It's just, that's, that's what it is. I don't think it's right, but that's just what it is, right? You tell me what channel you watch, I'll tell you your politics. I already know. <laughs> we can tell we all can do it so right. we, we gotta be able to cut through that and have genuine authentic conversations who are you gonna do that with who can cut through the noise well guess what especially when we're over grandma's house <laughs> we're gonna have to sit down and talk and oftentimes the array of differences show up in our families we have people who are all over the political spectrum. We have people who we may or may not take very seriously. They're the joker and everybody's got their roles, but the willingness to engage people where they are with a root of love, right? That's the assumption. There's some love in the family so you can have these conversations. It allows you to be more candid. It allows you to have robust debate, sometimes a little bit intense <laughs> and still come back to the table. Hopefully. And unfortunately, in other parts of society, we're just not that mature. We're just not that grounded in love to do those kinds of things. It's a sad but unfortunate reality. But we can take advantage of our family structures. And they don't have to be traditional structures. Whatever the family structure is, engage those folks first and then go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And then the second piece about elevating people with that personal connection. I mean, I think about the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams and his struggles with dyslexia and how that's shaping 
his educational plan. And like you said, if there is that personal connection, I think about all the parents that started the decoding dyslexia groups and how we now have legislation in many, many states that mostly was driven by parents. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about how do we elevate those folks to our school boards, to superintendents, to chief academic officers, I I think is really important. And I want to ask a follow-up question on your third one, because the idea of do not reinvent the wheel. We know what works. I mean, the National Reading Panel came out in 2000, so it's over a decade. Mm -hmm. I still feel like we struggle a little bit with schools and districts who have embraced, whether you call it balanced literacy or whole language or practices that are not evidence-based. How can we whether as publishers, as researchers, as practitioners, I know you're talking about these conversations that we need to have with the home team, but how can we make that bridge a little bit easier? You said we need bridge builders. How do we do that in the schools with folks who have been for decades, you know, using strategies that are not the most evidence-based or effective? Mm-hmm. So let me just put it like this. We really have to think about the levers of change. And there are technical things, then there are adaptive things. So I would say to any school board, especially the president of the school board, you have to have literacy goals in the superintendent's work plan and evaluation. You just have to, if you don't have literacy goals and evaluation, then you're going to get what you get. People focus on what you have them to focus on. We often talk about teachers and how we evaluate. No, no, no. The board only has one employee. It's the superintendent, traditionally. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to put literacy goals in there so that they focus on that. And then you have to manage them appropriately. And it's their job to organize staff, to request whatever they need to request, to figure it out. From a board perspective, if you don't have literacy goals, for your superintendent's evaluation, you're just playing games. You may not realize that everyone has the best of intentions, but you're hoping that it works out. Hope is really not a strategy. Right. So I, that's the first thing I would do. And it's really not very common, but it's also very, very simple. And it's reasonable. And you have to hire with that expectation that they have to know coming in, hey, look, this is what we consider success. This is part of the metrics of success. And retention depends on this. And you know, renewal, retent, whatever, like this is something that we care about. So we want to put it in there and provide you with whatever you need. In fact, to get this job, we'd love to hear how you plan on addressing literacy. Mm-hmm. As a board, that's your leverage, right? Other things that we can do to impact systems. So curriculum matters. It really does. There, there are curricular choices that are made that really speak volumes about knowledge, expectations, and approach. You know, I don't want to hear equity slogans. I don't want to hear uh, mission statements. All wonderful. That's all wonderful. I always tell people, show me your budget <laughs> and your calendar and your curriculum, and I will know what your values are. I don't, I don't, you know, you can save the yard sign and the equity statement. I just, where's the money going? What curriculum are you using? <laughs> and what's the schedule look like? That's what. And show me the research that the curriculum works, right? Well, yeah. Right. I'm saying, I'm saying, show me the curriculum. What's is it evidence based? 
right? What's the evidence that it works? Did you, most school systems, when they select curriculum, they don't read whatever reports are there. If they exist at all, they don't read that stuff. They don't have time to. In fact, there's another podcast, I won't mention them, there's another podcast where they look at districts that are really doing well with literacy. Uh-huh. And they talk about the choices that the choices that they make. Curriculum absolutely matters. The other thing that matters is the alignment of structures. So I'll give you an example. There are some curriculum that take for full implementation, you're talking about two to three hours a day. A day. Others take 15, 10, 15 minutes a day. Very few, but there's a couple. Now, two things. One, who do you think has the better results? And they're, and they're both, all these are aligned to the science and the research consensus. I'm just, they, they, yes, they are. Right? There's a class of high quality curricula that are. Who do you think is going to get better results? It's the teachers who actually have the time to prepare for this stuff consistently every day. So they can actually do the thing as it's written and intended and make adjustments as they need to because they can plan. They can use a, a scalpel instead of a chainsaw, <laughs> right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, in addition to the curriculum being high quality, you have to have systems that are aligned to it. So how much prep time do I have as a teacher to do those things? Do I have a designated literacy prep? Chicago has 300 minutes a week to prepare, whereas Oakland has 100. Fundamentally, they should be looking at different things. Right. Even if the curriculum is wonderful, if you've got 100 and they've got 300, even though the 300 object is really shiny and nice and beautiful and popular, maybe you might want to do something or, or purchase something that's aligned to your system. Right. And realize that you have the leverage as a school district to say, listen, uh, I would love to purchase this, but you need to come back with a newer version that's more streamlined. So those are some things that we can demand be aligned so that folks have a fighting chance to actually serve kids in a comprehensive way so that they can learn to read. Absolutely. That idea of the professional learning for the teachers, the curriculum tools, but also those systems and structures to make sure that they have the support. There's the buy-in from the leadership and the teachers. Well, hold on, Liz. There's all that, but you just said something. So you said the professional development for the teachers. Now, that's a whole other bucket. Because of the crisis in higher ed, where most teachers say, you know what, I should have gotten a rebate because I didn't learn anything about the science of reading. I don't know anything about dyslexia, and I went through my program. Because of that, the in-service professional development the districts provide are so important. Mm -hmm. We just got this influx of money from the federal government from the um, COVID. ESSER uh, funds, yeah. Yeah, ESSER funds, right? And so how how was that money spent? How much professional development? Are you putting everybody through letters training? Are you using Orton-Gillingham? Whatever the the thing is, right? Are, Are you providing your teachers opportunities to learn? And, and very important, paying them for their time They should have to pay for the registration. They should be given a stipend for the time as a matter of course, right? That just has to be where you start. Find the best providers. Find the folks who are good at it. They've got the best reviews from those who've gone through the programs and understand there's different levels. So there's some educators who are, you know, empty nesters and maybe their kids are gone now and they're, you know, they're the season of life where they're, you know, they can learn anything, do anything. Right, great, wonderful. They might be ready for a graduate level class um, type program. Then there's some out there. Then there's some folks who they're going through some issues in life. Their kids are still in the home and they're, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. 
<laughs> right? The time is time is limited. Right. Time is limited. And and they're hanging on for dear life. Or they may be in the middle and they may do something that, that's a little bit more modest. And then there's those folks who they may not even believe in the science of reading. They're just curious. But they want to at least dip their toe in the water. They're not ready for a graduate level class. They're not ready for even something a little bit modest, but they can give you a few hours on the weekend if they don't have to pay for it and they get a stipend. They're open to that. And that's all you're going to get for now. Right. Systems have to have opportunities for professional development for teachers at all those uh, areas. And they have to be aligned. They have to be aligned to the science of reading. You don't want one teaching one thing and someone else teaching something. But if they're aligned, you have to have on-ramps that folks can access so that they can get to the goal, which is to be more professionally prepared to to serve our kids. Right. Differentiation is not just for students. It's for teachers as well, like you said. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, Kareem, and I I thank you so much um, for joining us. I can't wait to hear how your trip to Washington goes. I can't stress enough the importance of that national movement and looking at literacy as a civil right. So I want to thank everyone for joining Kareem and I today for this conversation. You can join the conversation on Twitter by following Kareem at KJ Win Education and myself at Liz C. Brooke. Thank you so much again, Kareem. It's been wonderful to get to talk to you. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation. 